Let's pray together. Lord, as I'm about to begin this sermon, my prayer to you this morning is singular. Would you, through this message, give us the kind of faith that is able to look past all of our many limitations? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us in our church, I think it's safe to say, learn, have learned and now lean to be more on the conservative side in their approach to life. I'm not referring to our politics or even our theological perspective. Rather, I'm talking about our general inclination of choosing the practical over the fanciful, the careful over the impulsive, the calculated over the spontaneous. Many of us live our lives under the quiet assumption that if we just take one step at a time and, and don't get too far out ahead of ourselves, then we can mitigate risks and things will generally go pretty well for us. We are those who tend to lay out our plans ahead of time. We steer clear of potential hazards and we're very careful about things like money. When it comes to clothes, we're far more concerned with warmth factor than we are with wow factor. When it comes to savings, we're very patient to let every penny of interest accrue. And if you see us out on the road, you'll notice that we are more than happy driving in the right-hand lane at a pretty close speed that's on the posted sign. Now, I don't think that I'm the only person here who is something like this, and, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, though I think it can be very dangerous if we are not careful about our carefulness. Because there are many times in the Christian life when being careful is the very opposite of being faithful. The last thing that we should want for our church is for us to be driven by a pragmatic rationalism that limits our response to challenges and measures what we expect from God. Instead, there must be a great big space in our church body for a fearless faith that inspires radical action. The kind of faith that makes you climb up steep crags and fight a company of Philistines. The kind of faith that makes you go further than you ever thought possible, accomplishing more than ever seemed reasonable. And not because you look to yourself with all of your inabilities, but because you look to the God who can. So far in this book, we have seen the Lord come through in quite a few different ways through varying quantities of people, haven't we? In chapters 5 and 6, he defeated the Philistines all by himself, toppling their idol and forcing the return of his ark. In chapter 7, he again defeated those Philistines through the prophet Samuel and his newly repentant people. In chapter 11, he defeated the Ammonites through King Saul and his stirred-up armies of Israel. And now, in our passage, he will save by a few. Actually, just two men, the king's son and the man who carried his sword. 
And as God saves here by a few, we encounter in our text a stark contrast between a son with fear-crushing faith and a father who is marked by anxiety-ridden pragmatism. Now, the bones of this passage are fairly simple to discern, though it's a longer text. In chapter 13, verse 15, until the end, we learn of the situation before the great battle. In chapter 14, beginning at verse 1 all the way to verse 23, we discover the great salvation in the battle. And the contrast between faith and anxiety presented to us in these verses will force a a question upon us as we study them uh, thousands of years after the fact. What is our response when everything seems desperate? Well, first of all, let's consider the situation before the great battle. Israel was facing a bleak situation because their enemy came out in droves against them. Verse 15, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. And Jonathan... Excuse me, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came up out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. A lot of hard words. If you remember from last week, in the first part of chapter 13, the prophet Samuel had told King Saul that the kingdom of Israel would be stripped away from him and it would be given to a man after God's own heart. Because Saul had undermined the word of God and he had failed to obey the Lord's command. Saul was very worried about both the size of the enemy and the fact that his army was falling apart as one man after another fled to the hills in fear. And therefore, lacking a true trust in God, Saul did what seemed expedient in his own eyes by offering the Lord's sacrifice himself so that he might get on with what seemed to him to be bigger issues. He put God in the back seat, and therefore God removed him from the throne. And if you'll notice the end of verse 15, you'll see that King Saul is still obsessed with his dire circumstances because of the way he's focused on the numbers of his army. He had now just 600 forces left, 600 men that once numbered 3,000 men. Now, the numbering of troops might not seem like anything all that important at first glance, But if you look over at chapter 14 uh, to verse 17 of chapter 14, you'll notice that very soon he's going to number them again. And what I think the author of this book is communicating to us is that King Saul was very concerned with the size of his army and with his own war-making abilities, or lack thereof. He was a man bogged down by the practical as he was deeply concerned with the low percentage chance of his army winning this conflict. And practically, he was right. 
He had no realistic hope of ever defeating those Philistines with his meager troops. Do you remember the size of that army, the Philistines? Earlier on in chapter 13, verse 5, it told us that the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now, when you consider a foe like that, who outnumbers you to that extent, the first thought that comes to your mind is to be very cautious and oh so careful. Furthermore, in verses 16 through 18, we learn that the Philistines had sent out raiding parties, three companies in total traveling in three different directions, who it seems were sent out to block off the northern roads which prevented fresh troops from coming down from the northern tribes to rescue their endangered brethren. In other words, the Philistines had so many soldiers that they had boxed in Saul's army, preventing any realistic hope of escape. So the situation was pretty bleak. And Israel's situation was also bleak due to the ridiculous condition of their weapons. Notice verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now in a day of of drone bombers in the sky and armored tanks in the field and, and ICBMs flying through space, the weapons of 1 Samuel might seem kind of wimpy. After all, what can iron swords and spears do for you when satellites allow your enemy to watch you from above and strike you at will? And yet, in those early days of Israel's monarchy, iron swords and spears were the most technologically advanced and most powerful weaponry that a soldier could wield. And to not have them, to be stuck with only farm implements that were probably made out of bronze, a metal that was far weaker than iron, puts you at an incredible disadvantage. Well, the Philistines had asserted their control over Israel in those difficult years leading up to this. They would not let them have any blacksmiths, which prevented them from forging the vital weapons necessary to fight back. And they even charged the Israelites hefty sums whenever they brought the tools of their livelihoods to the Philistines themselves for sharpening. Now, you can't cut wood if your axe is dull, and you can't plow a field if the blade isn't sharp. So, to the Philistines, they would go paying exorbitant sums just to keep their tools in working condition. And this was all done in order to keep Israel weak. And weak they were. For in all of the army, only two men had any real weapons, the king himself and Jonathan his son. And the rest of the story is going to tell us which one of these fellows used his weapon the best. So as we approach chapter 14, the situation that Israel found itself in was incredibly bleak. 
Secondly, this morning, let's consider the great salvation in the battle. Note with me the bold faith of Jonathan, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, or perhaps under a tree it might be, at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose up in the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the other men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But, If they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. If you remember, this whole conflict with the Philistines began with the bold heart of Jonathan, who took the fight to the Lord's enemies back in chapter 13, verse 3. In that verse, it says that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So Jonathan went and picked a fight, he won the fight, and he got all the Philistines riled up for battle. So it wasn't the king of Israel who took the initiative and ginned up the enemy for the fight. It was his son, a man with the heart of a lion who knew, he just knew deep down in his bones what the Lord God could do. And one day, as the army remained cut off and in mortal danger, this daring Jonathan leaned over to his armor bearer and essentially says, hey, how about we go on over to the Philistines on the other side of the valley, implying, hey, let's go pick another fight. He did not tell his father, the king. And in verse 6, He reiterates this idea, and he even expands upon it. Note carefully verse 6. 
Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. There are three things to note here, I think, in this verse. Number one, he calls the Philistines these uncircumcised which was a negative label used to describe them as those who were outside of God's gracious covenant and who were, in fact, the enemies of God. And then secondly, he uses this may-be language. It says, it may be that the Lord will. And this does not imply any doubt in his part on God's ability, but rather he preserves God's freedom to always act according to his righteous will. And then number three, Jonathan expresses perfect confidence that if the Lord wills to save, nothing can hinder him, even if it means that he brings salvation by just a few, whether those few be 600 men or 300 men or just two dudes. He can do it. Well, while, while Jonathan and his companion were preparing for this audacious move, Saul appears to have simply been standing by along with this guy named Ahijah, who is the priest of the Lord, who was a man from the household of Eli, who we saw earlier in this book, had his days numbered, his priestly days numbered, and along with them were the 600 soldiers who remained with the king. Now, verse 4 is pretty important for this story because it tells us how difficult it was for Jonathan and his armor-bearer to do what they're about to do. This location was a, a pretty rugged one with loads of caves along with some incredibly steep cliffs. You can go there and see it today. At this place, there was a, a very narrow valley at the bottom. And on each side of this very narrow valley... As the mountains rose up from the valley on both sides, there were these rocky crags that Old Testament scholars describe as almost insurmountable for climbing and definitely insurmountable for fighting. And on the one side of the valley, the Israelites were hiding in some caves up in the cliffs, cowardly tucking themselves away. And on the other side of the valley, there was a garrison of the Philistines who enjoyed high ground, which gave them tremendous protection. It is here, while spying out the valley and the climb before them and the enemy on the other side, that Jonathan said, let's go over to these uncircumcised Philistines. You see, his faith was not the kind of faith that held back, waiting for everything to be just right. No, his faith was the kind of faith that dared to believe that God could do the unthinkable to accomplish His glory by delivering His people. And so, with his armor-bearer firmly behind him, behind him heart and soul, it tells us, Jonathan came up with a seemingly absurd idea. In verses 8 through 10, he presents a plan with two parts. Number one, they would show themselves to the enemy. So, they would come out of their hiding place and they would forfeit any element of surprise. Number two, they would let God guide them according to how the Philistines responded to seeing them. If the Philistines declared that they would come up to Jonathan 
which would put Jonathan in a much stronger strategic position, then Jonathan and his armor bearer would stay put, it tells us. But if the Philistines told them to come up to their side of the valley, which would make Jonathan and his armor bearer about as vulnerable as two soldiers could ever be, then they would see this as God's direction and they would go up to them for a fight. And this plan they put into action. In verse 11, they revealed themselves, prompting the enemy to, I think, mock them, saying, hey, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And then in verse 12, the Philistines directed Jonathan and his man to come up to them, and they said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. Or in our language, come on over here and I'm going to teach you a lesson. And in all of this, Jonathan concludes what no pragmatically driven thinker will ever conclude. He said to his armor bearer, come up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Friends, this is a ferocious faith. This is the kind of faith that chews up fear and spits it out. This is a faith that's rooted in the character and commitment of the Lord God himself, which is a solid rock for one's trust. It's the kind of faith not only that Jonathan portrayed, but the kind of faith that David will portray very soon in this book. And ultimately, it's the kind of faith that Jesus Christ himself, the perfect Jonathan, the perfect David, the perfect king, the perfect savior, the kind of faith that he would exemplify when he was willing to go to the cross according to the Father's will, shed his blood, laying his life down to pay for sinners like us. This is ferocious faith. The kind of faith that just chews up fear and spits it out. In verse 13, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climbed up on the other side on their hands and feet. Imagine the things thrown at them. It doesn't tell us that there were things thrown at them, but can you imagine the weapons, the rocks, the arrows that all somehow seemed to miss their target? And imagine the danger of slipping and falling, jagged rocks that would crush their bodies if it weren't if it weren't for the unusual grip strength that these two warriors now suddenly found themselves enjoying. And when they reached the top, there was no respite to regain their strength, like what was given to the Spaniard swordsman and the princess bride. No, they went right to battle, and Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them all. Around 20 men and what appears to have been, if I understand the geography here correct, a very small, tight place for fighting. In this faithful action, it started a chain reaction, a domino effect that caused dread among the Philistines in their camp, in their fields, and among all of their people. Those raiders who had blocked the northern roads, they began to tremble. And it seems that the Lord even made an earthquake. And this put all of God's enemies into a panic. Oh, friends, this is precisely what's accomplished when bold faith in God is displayed. The enemy begins to fall apart. But in contrast to Jonathan, notice the anxious actions of King Saul. Verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. 
And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Saul's watchmen saw the enemy dispersing, and so what does he do? He counts. Evidently still concerned about the number of his forces, worried that even more of them have gone AWOL, he arranged for yet another counting. Jonathan said in verse 6 that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether it be by many or by few. But in stark contrast, King Saul decided to count. Good writing. But this counting discovered that Jonathan himself was absent, the king's own son and his armor-bearer with him. Now remember, Jonathan had not told his father what he was up to, and Saul likely did not know what to think about his son's absence. Well, Saul then asked Ahijah the priest in verse 18 to bring the ark of God, which evidently was again traveling with them during the war, presumably to make a sacrifice beseeching the Lord for his favor in the conflict. That's a good thing to do, beseech the Lord for his favor in the conflict. But while he was talking to the priest in verse 19, the Philistines' panic caused such a great uproar that it prompted Saul to say again to the priest, withdraw your hand. No sacrifice today, Ahijah. I've got Philistines to kill. Friends, once again, King Saul is putting the pragmatic need to be about the king's business before his deepest need of the Lord God himself, the true king of Israel. There is no time for sacrifice when Philistines have to be fought. Or, as we might say, there is no time for prayer or worship when life needs to happen. Now, finally, recognize with me that this salvation was the Lord's. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time And who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing. They too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. Confusion took over God's enemies. Philistine swords went up against Philistine swords. Some men who appear to have been treacherous Israelites, called Hebrews in verse 21, turned back again and fought alongside of their kin. And those able-bodied men who had previously hid themselves in caves in chapter 13 and who had run away from the fight, they also now came out and fought against God's enemies. So the Lord used cowards, and traitors, and an earthquake, and confusion to rout his enemies. And this all started with two faithful men. One man, the son of a king, who simply believed that God is the God who can. And the other man, his trusted helper, who placed his faith in the same Lord of glory. But make no mistake about who the hero is. 
Make no mistake about who, got, who has the victory. This was the Lord's accomplishment. This was the Lord's salvation. This was the Lord's victory. It was he who saved Israel. So when we consider all of this, we see how God saved. And we see the approach taken by by Jonathan and the approach taken by his father Saul. And we see the stark contrast between them. The question comes to us, what's our response when everything seems so desperate? What's your response when you cannot see a way out? What's your response when you have no earthly reason to have hope? What is your response when following God's path feels an awful lot like it might make things actually somewhat worse? Or at least slow you down in finding the solution that you think you have to find. Oh, Riverside, let us be a church who responds with fear-crushing faith. In the King Jesus himself, who accomplished for us everything that we need for the victory. When you look at the story, don't put yourself into Jonathan's shoes. Consider yourself as one of the Israelites who's hiding in the cave. When you look at this story, don't think of yourself as the armor bearer. Think of yourself as the one who's taken up sides with the enemy. See yourself in that light and then recognize that God has worked a salvation even in spite of you. Oh, Riverside, let us be a a people who respond to challenges with fear, crushing faith, by looking to the Savior, King Jesus. Not just a few, but one man, a God-man, who provides salvation for us and ignites us for wonderful ministry among each other and in this world. Now is not the time to be careful. Now is the time to be bold with the gospel of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has given our church a great commission, great in every way. He has charged us to go and make disciples, to teach, to baptize, to bring them up in the Lord. He has charged us with this, and it is not for us to sit back and count It is not for us to sit back and wait. It is not for us to sit back and measure whether or not it's possible. It is for us to look to the God who can. Churches sit still and die because people decide to be pragmatic and to sit back and wait. When, though there is an important place for waiting upon God and praying to God, He has also called us that after we have waited, after we have prayed, we are to go in His strength, climbing up that crag. So, let's pray big prayers for our church in faith that the God who can is the God who will. Not this next Sunday, or is it next Sunday? Next Sunday, we're launching our prayer week. It can be a time of impotence where very few take it seriously and very little is accomplished. Or it can be a time where tremendous strength is found and enjoyed as we learn to nourish each other and we learn to broadcast the gospel in a much stronger way if we are willing to come together as a church family and trust that the God who can is the God who will. And we ask him and approach him with that kind of a fearless faith. 
Let's pray big prayers for our church in faith that the God who can is himself the God who will. Let's pray for big prayers for our church when it comes to evangelism and discipleship. That we would see, as we boldly and faithfully share, people coming to Christ. And pray that as we see people coming to Christ, we would see people take one step after another towards being a stronger disciple of Jesus Christ as we ourselves step in and help them. Let's pray for that. Grandma's hip replacement, not a bad thing to pray for. This, much bigger, much better. Let this be the focus. Let's pray also for big prayers for our church when it comes to growth, to spiritual growth, to conversion growth. That we would see God form us into the image of Jesus Christ that when other places, other people look at Riverside, they would say, wow, they are different, they're content, they're, they're gentle, they're kind, they're courageous, they're strong, they're hope-filled. That God would make us like that. We would see growth like that. And that we would also see growth by seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. If we have believers who begin to come to our church and join our church, praise God for it. We need more laborers to go out into the harvest. But our prayer should first be, O Lord, would you allow us to see people who come to know Jesus Christ, who become Christians, who were not Christians, before we shared the gospel with them. Pray that kind of a prayer. And let's pray big prayers for our church when it comes to church planting and missions. How can a church of 50 or so members thinking about planting a church, how can a church of 50 members think about actually supporting missionaries in any kind of a substantial way? Well, we can do so if we're willing to trust the Lord who's climbed the crag up for us. He went up the cross. He paid for our sins. And now we follow him carrying the same cross, climbing up the same steep slope. We can do those things. Newport Ritchie has so much need. Need for English-speaking congregations. Need for Spanish-speaking congregations. Newport Ritchie has need. Pasco County has need. Florida has need. Our nation has need. The whole world filled with all of these unreached people groups who have need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can use us if we have ferocious faith trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in a mighty way to be about that commission that he's given. So let's pray big prayers. And as we pray those big prayers, let us individually and corporately step up with boldness. Let's step up and each member of this congregation commit to having gospel conversations with those individuals who seem to us to be impossible. Gospel conversations with people who it seems impossible because we're so, so deficient and it seems impossible because they're so stubborn and stuck, but we're willing to go to them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know that it, the gospel, Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation. And if he decides to strike, nothing stops. Let's step up by reprioritizing life so that we can better reprioritize people. Let us step up by saying all of these other things, there's some really good things in life, but I need to do a check. I need to rethink, I need to reprioritize what my biggest 
most important roles are in life. Because if one of those important roles isn't ministering the word of God to other people, Riverside members, if one of your roles isn't to minister somehow the word of God to some other individual, you're not being faithful. You are needed not just to pray big prayers, but to go boldly with the word of God. Share with your kids, share with other people's kids, share with the teenager, share with the young adult, share with the friend, share with the neighbor, build a relationship, share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then build enduring discipleships, relationships with people where you build them up, they build you up, and you both become stronger in Jesus Christ. And lastly, let us step up by saying, here am I, Lord, send me, or at least use me for the peoples of this earth. Use me, whether I'm a goer or whether I'm a sender, to be used to reach the peoples of this earth. Every Riverside member should see himself or herself as either a goer, and we hope we have some of those. One of them right now is in Southeast Asia, teaching a group of about 20 to 30 women, praise God. But we also need goers, but we also need senders. People who are willing to sacrifice of themselves, their time, and their money so that the goers can go. Align yourself with God's perspective. Be like Jonathan and don't see the crag that's any issue. Rather, see it as something that will give God all the more glory once he accomplishes through it. Oh, let us be the kind of people who have a fear-crushing faith. Let us pray. Lord God, you are kind that even in all of our weakness as we're challenged by your word, you just give us more and more grace. We fail you all the time. We fail to prioritize people. We fail, Father, to love others as we should. We fail to trust you when things get hard. We fail to align ourselves with your perspective. And yet, Lord, you're so gracious to us. You forgive us when we ask. You change us. You transform us. And you ignite us, Father, so that we don't stay where we are, but we take steps of growth. Help us, I pray, as a church family to have this kind of trust in you. Not because we see in ourselves any special abilities or even any ability at all, but because we see in you the God who can. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.